Ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Tired of hearing that already? Has Christmas music invaded your town? The places you go, just blasting it out? Well, it's the biggest holiday in the Western world. For the most part, Christmas is hard not to notice at this time of year. Some people love Christmas. Some people are indifferent. Some people find it annoying. And others have maybe traumatic memories or have lost a loved one and hate it. So keep that in mind, by the way, when you, you know, people, everyone's different. Uh, for many Christians, though, it is an especially holy day. It's the celebration of the birth of Jesus, the birthday of Jesus. But is it? Is it really? Let's find out. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. Welcome to Fangs and Folklore. I'm an expert in all things paranormal and horror and weird, I suppose. I'm a horror writer from the depths of the haunted swamps of Louisiana, and I welcome you to my terrifying world. Check out my books on Amazon. Uh, number one is called Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story. Blood Feud, a punk rock vampire story by Matthew Miller. It's uh, number one in the Gravedigger series, and it's a six-part series. Number six is coming out like this week, so it'll be complete. It's about a failing punk rock band who have no musical talent whatsoever, but keep running into all sorts of horrifying monsters like vampires, werewolves, zombies, and who knows what else. It's horror comedy, it's super entertaining, and all of them are available in paperback, on Kindle, and Kindle Unlimited, and audiobook. So, uh, check them out if you would. I've decided to cut out the wine review portion of Fangs and Folklore, a couple of reasons, but someone made the point that, you know, people tuning into a horror podcast probably don't want to see a wine review, and probably don't care. Uh, I love red wine, but not everyone does, and it's just taking up space. So, we're going to cut that out. That doesn't mean I'm not going to still drink red wine, don't get me wrong, but we're going to cut out the wine review and fangs and folklore. All right, let me just say this episode is obviously about Christmas. I'm going to uh, do it as objectively as I can. My own personal religious beliefs are lack thereof, which I don't really talk about a lot, um, are not the focus here. So bear with me as I try to speak in as neutral a way as possible and as scholarly a way as possible, I guess just meaning neutral. And uh, finally, if you have kids within in listening distance, I do give a Santa spoiler, if you know what I mean, so you might not want to allow them to hear this. Uh, it might ruin something for them, okay. All right, let's start with a Christian version of Christmas. What is Christmas? Well, the word Christmas, contraction of Christ's mass, right? The mass from the Latin misa, meaning sending out, is what Catholics celebrate as their church service. It's a celebration of the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world, according to Christian doctrine. It usually includes things like midnight services on Christmas Eve. Uh, most people in the U.S. at least have a Christmas tree decorated in the house and in Europe. Uh, we get together with family. We have a big banquet meal. We exchange gifts, right? And it tends to focus on children, although everyone can enjoy it. I do have some great memories of my own childhood for Christmas. Uh, these days, it's more of a thing for the kids. You know, I want them to be happy like my nieces and nephews and so forth. I don't have any kids. Uh, so what's going on with all this? Well, uh, the basic idea is that the tree to the Christian represents life, uh, evergreen life. Uh, the gift uh, exchange represents the gift that Jesus gave to the world of his sacrifice. And that's a basic idea. Of course, we're going to go deeper than that. Have you ever thought about the fact that Christ Christmas is not mentioned in the Bible? <laughs> that it seems a bit odd if it's the biggest holiday of Christian Christians and Christendom. Also, Christmas occurs in the middle of winter, but the consensus among the world's top Bible scholars is that Jesus was certainly not born in the middle of winter, born in the spring or the summer. Whatever it was, it was certainly not winter. I won't go into the reasons for that because that's not the focus here, but if you're interested, it's really easy to find information on that. Some other things that are not in the Bible. Christmas trees, elves, Santa, mistletoe, Christmas gift exchanges. 
So we have to start with a pretty obvious fact that the early church did not celebrate Christmas. It's not an original thing to Christianity. Surely such an important holiday would have been at least mentioned in the Bible. But we do know, in fact, that Christmas began to be celebrated as a Christian holiday in the 4th century under the Emperor Constantine. He was the first Roman Christian emperor. He saw that vision of a giant cross before battle and became a Christian. Before that, it did not exist as a Christian holiday, but did it exist at all? Well, there is strong evidence that the Christian Christmas is a Christianization of older pagan holidays. In fact, it is. First, many scholars believe that Christmas was really Saturnalia. Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festival that honored the god Saturn, held on December 17th and extending through December 23rd, so just around the same time. Uh, there were sacrifices made at the Temple of Saturn, uh, uh, animal sacrifices, in the Roman Forum, and a big public banquet, uh, party in the streets, exchanging gifts, uh, communal gifts, a carnival atmosphere that flipped everything on its head, like this, the masters would serve the slaves dinner instead of the other way around. Um, they would elect a king of Saturnalia, who was allowed to pretend to be a king for a day or a couple of days. And it was a lot of drunkenness and feasting and gluttony and things like that. People gave each other gifts. Sigillaria uh, were these little clay or wax statues that they would give as gifts for Saturnalia. Who was the god Saturn? Basically, he was the Romanized form of the Greek god Kronos. So he was a god of time, of generations, of dissolution, abundance, wealth, agriculture, renewal, and liberation. You might think, man, that's a kind of a diverse job description. Well, the Roman gods did indeed have many, many roles. All of them did. Uh, diverse roles, too. I mean, agriculture slash time. <laughs> yes. But they're all related in some way. You'll see. So what did Saturn have to do with December? All right. In his role as the god of agriculture, wealth, and periodic renewal, he was important in winter. Uh, obviously, I mean, every society ultimately is based on agriculture, right? If you don't farm, you don't eat, and everyone dies. So society depended in Rome also on crops. And in the middle of winter, what happens? The world is dead, right? Nothing grows. Everything dies. The world's gray. It becomes still, corrupt, falls to the ground and withers and, and disintegrates. It seems like the world is over, right? That is, that's it. It's dead. We'll never again see life. By worshiping and celebrating Saturn, it was a reminder that the renewal of spring would come again, that life would come from death, resurrect from death, that crops would grow again. And the theme of life uh, in death, of resurrection, renewal, the coming spring, is not unique to Rome or to Christianity either. Uh, basically, it exists in almost every culture in the world. It's a human trait because all ancient societies were agricultural and at some point, and most of still our societies still depend on agriculture for life, right? By the way, the word pagan is from the Latin word pagus, um, meaning the country, the countryside, the land out in the country. People who worked the land, meaning farmers, were paganus, plural pagani, meaning people of the land, people of the countryside. So the word has no evil connotations. It was the, the Catholic Church that made paganism seem related. You know, you think in your mind, pagan, mysterious, evil, you know, uh, satanic uh, uh, rituals. But it didn't. It just meant people of the land, farmers, peasants. That's it. Uh, and these people had their own local religions. Many had a, a, a god of their local village in addition to the to, uh, Roman gods and so forth. And so the Roman Catholic Church, if we're honest, has a long history of trying to temper or even wipe out uh, paganism, right? Making people stop their own beliefs and become Christian. When Catholic missionaries would go to a new area, a uh, new land, they had to try to convince the locals to leave their own religion to become Christian. And uh, that produced different kinds of results. <laughs> and uh, 
The church found that many European pagans were very reluctant to convert. Some of them refused, even to the point of killing missionaries. Okay? That's where you get many of the martyrs. So in order to try to work the pagans into the church with uh, you know, less resistance, they would often Christianize a pagan holiday. By giving it a new meaning to the holiday, but allowing the people to still celebrate it, it was seen as a sort of necessary compromise. In other words, all right, you have this uh, pagan festival at this such and such a time. Okay, uh, we'll let you celebrate it, but just instead of this God, say Jesus, and instead of this God, it's the one God, and so forth, right? Christianization. That's precisely what happened with Christmas. Now, Saturnalia is not the only possible origin of Christmas and even of the Christ figure. Osiris, the father of Horus in ancient Egyptian lore, which was much older than Rome, was another god born of a virgin. Uh, his sufferings, death, and resurrection were celebrated at uh, the mystery place at Abydos on about March 25th, um, around Easter. The pharaoh Amenhotep III uh, was hailed as the son of the virgin uh, Mutemua. And uh, in the picture of the, his birth declares, uh, one, one Egyptologist, Samuel Sharp, says, the picture in the temple of Amun in Thebes, there's a picture of his birth and his life. And you see, he says, quote, we have the Annunciation, the Conception, the Birth, and the Adoration, as described in the first and second chapters of Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> and as we have historical assurance that the chapters in Matthew's Gospel, which contain the miraculous birth, are an after edition, not in the earliest manuscripts, debatable, it seems probable that these two poetical chapters in Luke may also be unhistorical, borrowed from Egyptian accounts of the miraculous births of their kings, close quote. Okay, that's controversial, not necessarily true, but the, the Egyptian legend of the virgin-born God who died and was buried and resurrected is, in fact, real. That legend existed. Another possibility for this Christ figure and the Christmas and the birth and the death resurrection is uh, Krishna of India. Um, Krishna was born of a virgin, Devaki, and his nativity was, was shown by a star in the sky. Sound familiar? And uh, he was born in a cave. And... Um, Basically, uh, there was a great light in the cave. Um, uh, the infant, uh, Jesus, Jesus and the infant, Krishna, spoke to their mothers uh, soon after birth. Uh, a couple other things. Uh, he was uh, born when his father, Krishna's father, Nanda, was in the city to pay his tax to the king. Remember, Jesus and his family have to go uh, either to register for a census or to flee Herod's um, uh, slaughter of the firstborn. That is two different accounts in the Gospels different things happening. And there's no historical evidence that Herod's slaughter ever happened, except, except from the Bible. I'm not saying it didn't, but, you know. Uh, so he was warned, Nanda, the father, like Joseph, was warned by the heavens to flee with the child, Krishna. And um, just like Jesus and Joseph warned to flee to Egypt. And there's a lot of uh, things like this. Um, Krishna was crucified. <laughs> he was pierced with an arrow while hanging on a cross, an actual cross. Uh, the light of the sun was blotted out when Krishna's death, just like Jesus. And um, Krishna descended into hell to raise the dead. And then he himself resurrected to become God. So a lot of these stories are very similar in ancient societies. Those are the only three also. Um, the Christ-like story. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to offend Christians, and I'm not saying Jesus wasn't real and all that. What I'm saying is that the themes are very ancient and predate Christianity. Um, their ancient themes are motifs that appear all around the world. Just trying to be objective. So we've seen that in order to try to work with pagans uh, into the church with less resistance, they would Christianize a pagan holiday, uh, giving it a new meaning. And so this is precisely what happened with Christmas. But is there a darker side? Dun, dun, dun. Well, 
Maybe so. Going back further in history than the Saturnalia to the most ancient European peoples, the people who are prehistoric, the ones who built Stonehenge and those kind of things, humans were greatly attuned to nature, of course. They knew nature much better than we do. They knew the stars in the sky because that's all they did. They didn't have computers. They look up in the night sky and study. And um, they believed that the world really died in winter. It was death. And you had to appease the gods to bring life back, to bring resurrection, so that in the spring, life would return to the world, crops would grow again. Animal sacrifice, lots of it. In fact, it's still practiced in religions around the world. I think about New Orleans, my own New Orleans, voodoo practitioners to this day sacrifice roosters, chickens, in rites and rituals. Uh, to ancient people, sacrificing cattle was seen as a big deal because they needed those cattle to live. A cow was really, really important to a, a village. Milk, uh, labor, meat, all the things that cattle represented. The idea was that by giving up something they really needed, something truly valuable, they were showing the gods that they were giving them themselves. The gods would reward them by bringing the world back to life, giving them a good crop, bringing crops back to life. So a literal resurrection. If cattle is a valuable sacrifice, how much more so a human being? That's right. Human sacrifice was quite common around the world in ancient times, in ancient European societies. The Celts absolutely sacrificed humans a lot. Um, you know, even the Mesoamerican, the Americans before the Europeans came, tons of human sacrifice. Think Aztecs. So human sacrifice is very common in the ancient world. It was a fundamental essential part of the offering to the gods of the harvest to convince them, look, we're giving you a human being, the most valuable thing there is to us. Please see this. We're giving you something. Now please give us something. Bring the world back from the dead. Give us crops again so we can eat and survive. Like the sacrifice of Jesus to appease the Christian God so that he would provide resurrection of the dead, so were the human sacrifices of winter meant to bring resurrection to the world. It's not a new idea by any means. Christianity didn't, didn't invent it, nor did you know any religion. It's been around forever. I think many Christians don't realize or maybe just don't think about the fact that Christianity is a religion very much based on appeasing an angry God with human sacrifice. Look, read the Bible. The God of the Old Testament, uh, it's the same God, but... Man, he was kind of angry. I mean, it's not, I hate to say it, but look at the things he did. Destroying towns, villages, killing babies, plagues, you know, uh, locusts, all this stuff. And then you see in the New Testament kind of a different God. Not a different God, but a different tone. An appeasement by the sacrifice of Jesus. So this sacrifice of a human uh, to appease an angry God is very much a part of Christianity. It also includes cannibalism in the sense of a communion. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Whether you see that as literal, Catholic, or symbolic, Protestant, it still is eating flesh and drinking blood. Okay, so Christmas comes from this ancient, ancient mythos, this ancient motif of death in winter, of giving sacrifice in order to bring life back, of resurrection, right? Bring back the resurrection of crops, basically. Now, what about the different elements of Christmas that we celebrate? Where do they come from? Exchanging gifts. Uh, of course, there's a theme here that Jesus gave himself as a gift for the world, so we give each other gifts, okay, one another gifts. Also, St. Nicholas, the Christian saint behind the persona, okay, kids, don't let your kids listen, okay? Give you a couple of seconds just in case. All right. St. Nicholas, the person behind Santa Claus, was allegedly a bishop of the city of Myra. There's actually very little evidence that he really existed, but there is some. And the lore about him says that he delighted in giving money to the poor. That's what he loved to do, and he had money. Um, he was seen as a gift giver, the great gift giver. And so he that bears some influence on the idea of exchanging gifts. That's why Santa Claus gives gifts, because he's based on St. Nicholas, who loved to give money to the poor. What about Santa flying in a sled through the sky, pulled by reindeer? 
Some scholars believe it mimics the account of the Norse god Thor. He was the god of thunder. He flew through the sky in a chariot pulled by magical goats. <laughs> and um, reindeer also were, are viewed in the northern world, and still are, as kind of mysterious creatures. They're symbols of good fortune and joy. They're like a, an animal crop <laughs> during the winter, right? What about the Christmas tree? We kind of talked about this. You're bringing an evergreen plant, something alive and green, very alive, into your home in the midst of the death of winter. And so it's a very ancient tradition. And the evergreen lives through the death of winter. It's life in death. It's like a symbol and reminder of resurrection, that life will come again. Hold on. Winter will be over at some point. Just like this tree lives in winter, so will we live again. So will our village live again. We'll get crops again, and we'll be happy again. Even in death, there is life and growth, even growth. Adorning the tree with ornaments, pretty shiny things, just emphasizes that the tree is important. And in a sense, you're, we don't mean it this way, but it's like worshiping the tree. Remember that ancient European societies were uh, animists. They believed that everything in the world, even rocks, trees, non-living things, had gods and spirits inside of them. So you're literally adorning the tree in worship to pray to the god of agriculture and the god of the tree to bring life back again in resurrection in the spring. What about the mistletoe? This one's easy. In Celtic religion and other pagan religions, mistletoe, also note is an evergreen, was seen as a potentially magical plant, uh, a potently magical plant, sorry, very potent magical plant. It warded off evil spirits is one thing. It also was uh, to be protective against poison. And remember, early witchcraft involved poison. And also was seen um, as a, uh, a symbol of fertility. So by placing it around the house in the season of death and the season of sickness, people get sick in the winter, right? You drive away the evil spirits of illness and poison and disease. And by, by kissing under the mistletoe, that's a reminiscent of our ancient tradition that it's a symbol of fertility. Again, very important. In the winter, things are dead. We need to get things fertilized again so they are born and grow in the spring. Fertility religions. Christmas meals are often big extravagant affairs you know, a big goose or something, ham, lots of dishes. This is also to celebrate abundance in a season where there is little. A uh, season of death, by using large amounts of food needed to get through the winter, it is also a sort of sacrifice, right? We're giving of, of things we need as an act of faith in the gods that as we feast in winter now and we use lots of the food that we really need, so will the gods bring back life in the spring. What about Krampus? Do you know about Krampus? Um, if you're not familiar, Krampus is a Northern European Christmas figure. Consider him like the anti-Santa. <laughs> uh, in the U.S. here, we have Santa Claus, right? Nice children get presents. Naughty children get coal and ashes. But they both come from Santa, right? But in northern European countries, naughty children get kidnapped by this Christmas demon named Krampus. It's horns and everything taken away to be eaten. My goodness. And uh, many scholars believe that Krampus is a part of pagan rituals for the winter solstice, which, by the way, yesterday was the winter solstice. According to legend, he's a son of Hel, the Norse god of the underworld, where we get the word Hel in Germanic languages from. It might even harken back to Saturnalia, when everything was turned upside down, chaotic, for a day. But festivities involving Krampus have the Krampus run, the Krampuslauf, where there's a, like a parade of, of Krampi, people dressed as Krampus, drinking, having fun, scaring people, parading through the streets, chasing kids just for fun. Uh, the church... Simi adopted Krampus as a symbol of Satan, who's used to scare children into pious behavior and obedience to the church and to their parents. I'm not saying the idea of Satan came from Krampus. I'm saying it was kind of adopted to look like a Christian demon. Notice that Christian demons have the horns and everything. 
Um, other evil spirits from other religions look different. So there you have it. Christmas is a much deeper and older thing than many imagine, and is certainly not originally a Christian holiday. It comes from ancient, ancient traditions and times and motifs. So this year, when you sit around the decorated Christmas tree, exchanging gifts with your family, enjoying a large feast, just remember all the people who were brutally sacrificed to the god of the harvest so you can enjoy this holiday. <laughs> Sorry. Just, I find it darkly humorous there. Uh, thank you for watching. I hope you do have a great and Merry Christmas or a great whatever holiday you may celebrate, if any. Have a great season. We'll pick back up with Fangs and Folklore after Christmas. As for me, I think I've been nice and not naughty this year. I think I've been pretty nice. So I'm expecting Santa to come ringing bells and bringing me gifts and presents. And Uh-oh. What's that? Uh, I think that's Krampus, actually. Maybe I've been naughtier than I thought. All right, I'm getting the hell out of here. Uh, thanks for watching, and as always, sleep well if you can. Uh -huh.